0: Ultimately, you know, his whole journey was to help other people. And if you look at, the, as you as you see in the doc, he talks about your rent here on earth, you know, being your, you know, the price you paid it to enter heaven, you know, what you do for others. Um, he was constantly trying to find a way to do things for other people. I think that that resonates because, you know, that's something, you know, when you're in the ring and you're a fighter, you have to be very selfish because it's just you and the other guy He's trying to knock your head off, you're trying to knock his off. But when you're out of the ring, you know, who are you? And I think Ali made it very clear who he was.
1: Welcome to the Edge of Sports podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week, we speak to the director of the Academy Award winning film Training Day, Antoine Fuqua. We're talking about his latest project, it's called What's My Name, a unique documentary about Muhammad Ali that's produced by LeBron James, debuting February 14th on HBO. I also have some choice words about a particularly sexist nominee uh, of Donald Trump's who's used sports as a platform for his sexism, and I've got Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down awards, but first, let's go to Antoine Fuqua. I mean, there have been some amazing documentaries about Muhammad Ali, uh, incredible work like Trials of Muhammad Ali, and of course, uh, famously the one about the rumble in the jungle, When We Were Kings. What makes uh, this documentary different?
0: Well, this one is from his perspective only,
1: really. I mean, the goal is for Muhammad Ali
0: to tell his story, which those are great documentaries, but rarely do you have a documentary where you have... uh, someone like Muhammad Ali or even find enough footage where the, um, where the person can tell his own story. You know, it's actually, that's unique.
1: Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Uh, it's really remarkable. Not easy. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, sir. Okay, not easy to do, right?
0: As you can imagine, to try to keep that consistent. You, you can put together a story where someone can comment on the story you're telling, um, you know, the subject, obviously being Muhammad Ali, um, that's not easy because everyone has a story about him. Um, And you hear things, you know, uh, uh, through the press and everything about him, but to find his voice was the key. Mm.
1: How much of this was a passion project for you? I mean, when were you first aware of Muhammad Ali growing up and what, what has he meant to you over the years?
0: uh it's definitely a passion project a 100 percent passion project i I pretty much box every day of my life i I box every day and i train with fighters that's kind of what i do Um, i'm involved with a lot of that that world um he he was a part of my life since i since i can remember my family watching um the fights you know um back in the day uh, i think the first fight that i was really engaged and aware of probably was 75 75 you know um I think it was joe frazier um then i was about 10 years old you know watching that with my mom and dad and my, and my uh my cousins um that i remember that fight i remember uh you know muhammad ali's trials and tribulations i wasn't as aware of them then as i am now obviously uh to what he was going through you know, because as a kid, you just living your life. But, you know, we all ran around talking about float like a butterfly, sting like a bee, you know, rumble, rumble, young man, rumble. That was something we used to say to each other before games. I played sports my whole life. So Ali has always been a big part of my life. Um, he is definitely my hero and um, it's my inspiration. Uh, before I do a film, every film I have title, title builds me a whole gym with a ring and everything. And we have pictures of my Ali around and myself. We go in there and train, Denzel trains. That's what we do before we even make a movie. So he's a, he's a big part of my life.
1: Wow. Yeah, I was at Ali's funeral in Louisville, and there are thousands of young people lined the streets to chant for him. And these were people so young they never could have seen him box. Why do you think his mm-hmm. Why do you think his legacy endures in such a way, and why do you think it has such purchase, even with a young generation of people?
0: Well, I would, you know, there's two things. One, I certainly would say he was anointed early. He was special from the beginning. He had a, a aura about him, and he had a, a charm and a presence that I, it's hard to put your finger on. But one thing I think Ali um, uh, was about was everything. You know, so so interesting. He brags so much about himself. I mean, I'm the greatest of all time, right? Mm -hmm. But yet, ultimately, he cared more about everybody else. Ultimately, you know, his whole journey was to help other people. And if you look at the, as you you see in the doc, he talks about your rent here on earth, you know, being your, you know, the price you paid it to enter heaven, you know, what you do for others. Um, He was constantly trying to find a way to do things for other people. I think that that resonates because, you know, that's something, you know, when you're in the ring and you're a fighter, you have to be very selfish because it's just you and the other guy. He's trying to knock your head off. You're trying to knock his off. But when you're out of the ring, you know, who are you? And I think Ali made it very clear who he was, you know, um, on the world stage. He changed his name. He got ridiculed for that. He didn't, you know, he didn't believe in the war. He got ridiculed for that. But he never wavered and i think that he 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 stood by his principles so you know for whatever reason even to this day there's very few people you just say that um that did that and he risked everything mm-hmm. you know he risked he lost his belt he, he had money issues he risked everything for what he believed in
1: mm. no that's certainly right um now you know, you see the, the a typical Antoine Fuqua film. You have a very distinctive filmmaking style, certainly. Uh, how did that play into the making of this film? How did you? How do you feel like you put your imprint on this story?
0: You know, I think I was... My goal was just, you know, I'm always... In, in any film I do, I mean, visually, you know, I just wanted to make it feel cinematic, you know, because it's a documentary and I want people to see it and enjoy it as well because, you know... And sometimes people can be taught just by being entertained, and they can get a message out of it. So I think part of it was making sure that whenever we had the fight sequences and things like that, that you really felt the drama of the of the fights in a very real way. Obviously, because they were happening, and people who may not have seen those fights and know nothing about boxing can still get wrapped up in the drama of it all to see, you know, how those fights unfolded, how brutal they were. Um, like when he when he fought Leon Spinks, I mean it was just brutal to watch him go through that beating. You know he took a beating, um, and you start thinking about the Parkinsons why he's being hit like that. I wanted you to mm-hmm. feel that. You know I wanted the audience to feel the reality of fighting um, uh, mm-hmm. in those situations. I think uh, ultimately my goal with any movie I make is I try to find God in everything I do. That's just me, and I try to find. Um, what's the message in it you know and in this one it's like i'm I'm very happy for me at least after i watch it i go that's a life well lived you know ultimately here's a guy that went through all the changes doesn't matter if he was a christian or a muslim or whatever that's a life well lived because ultimately at the end he wanted to do more for others and you know that was the message and that's what i try to do in my films you Equalizer is about you know um, obviously it's about justice and that character Denzel's character Robert McCall is all about helping others who can't help themselves so that's you know and you know you try to infuse that part of myself into it obviously it, it has nothing to do with me really it's Ali you know but I was I was happy that that's the journey that it took me on
1: mm. now. Muhammad Ali's family is, of course, you know, very, very active in his legacy. Um, have they seen the film, and what, what was their response, if so?
0: Yes, we showed it to Lonnie, uh, his wife, and uh, it was really emotional. Uh, we, went to, we flew to Phoenix and sat down with her, and myself, and Maverick, and my producers, and HBO, and, you know, you can imagine, man, we had the whole room set up, and she came in, and, you know, I was nervous, you know what I mean, right after Uh All the Michael Michael Jackson stuff just came out, you know, and, you know, and she didn't see anything and uh, she wanted to wait. And uh, so we played her the film and at the end of it, she had tears in her eyes. We all had tears in our eyes and she was really proud, gave me a big hug. She was really proud of it. And she said, where did Uh you find all this footage, the stuff she hasn't even seen?
1: That was honestly my next question. (laughs) <laughs> oh man. where did you find all this footage because I, I have known and I've interviewed Ali archivists and you know they, they, they comb the history and, and I I mean honestly I feel like I've seen every Ali documentary and I saw so much in your film that I had never seen before how, how were you able to do that?
0: I had an amazing team of people really um, archivists I had a, a group of people that worked with me uh, my, my editor his name is Jake um, Jake um, Glenn Zipper, Steve Leckhart, and Sean Stewart—they're all a part of it. These guys, like dug deep, man. They really did. We we knocked mm-hmm. on doors. We got people's personal footage. You know, we called uh, Don King. Um, we went up to Fighter's Heaven. You know, trying mm-hmm. to find things there. There were things on the wall that are still there—beautiful photographs that are still there. Um, I mean, we just dug as deep as we could. It wasn't easy. It took four years. Uh, to find a lot of it, and we and ha- still a room full of stuff that we couldn't even get into the documentary. did I would have loved to, but you know, there's only so much time to do that. But, uh, but that's an, it, he lived such a big, amazing life on the world stage. I mean, everywhere he went, can you imagine Muhammad Ali with with cell phones today? I mean, you know, amazing, amazing. With Twitter. Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah. So he basically did it
1: without all that. Mm-hmm. And he always made this effort to leave a singular impression on everybody he've met. I've never met anybody in public life who more people, like more average, regular folks have stories about, of their interactions with him. Like he made a point to leave an impression on just about everybody he came into contact with.
0: Yeah, and that's what we discovered is just so many stories about Ali. I mean, it'd just be random people that said, oh, I met him once. I saw him on Mm -hmm. the floor, and he he came up to me and said something to me. You know, it's amazing. You know, some of you believe and some of you're like, yeah, right, you know. But Mm -hmm. when you look at the breadth of his life, you go, oh, maybe they're telling the truth, you know. It's like he's Mm -hmm. – and they have details of what he said or something he did. Um, Lonnie, his wife, tells the story. When she first saw him, he was sitting on a porch, I think, across the street from where she lives, and it was just like a whole crowd of young men all around this guy. She's like, who is this guy, you know. And, and everywhere he goes, people just sort of gravitate towards toward him. So it's just something, it was something special about him from the beginning. He stood
1: right. up Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I'm sure you're going to be asked this a lot because it's going to be a real curiosity about this film, given the age we're in now of a new generation of activist athletes. So I got to ask you. Uh, what role did LeBron James play in the shaping of the film in discussions with you? And what what did you what do you think LeBron James, what, what are his feelings towards Ali in terms of his legacy that you could share with us?
0: Well, I mean, I, 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 mean, I, I would let LeBron say how he feels about something. Um, but he was a big part of it, obviously, him and Maverick and his team. We all, you know, we all had our hands in it. Ali's very important to LeBron. Um, I believe as you see what LeBron is doing, building schools for kids, um, you know, outside of, outside of the basketball court, uh, he's, he's speaking up about injustice. I think a lot of that has to do with his love and, and, and inspiration from Muhammad Ali, uh, you know, as you see him growing and which is very clear, you see him growing and evolving into this leader, you know, um, uh, you know, for equality. I mean, he's speaking up much more than he has before. But he Mm -hmm. was a big part of this. So a lot of that has to do with his love for Muhammad Ali. He has a lot of love for Muhammad Ali. Um, There's no question about it. And I think that um, Ali is definitely one of his heroes.
1: Fantastic. And I just have one last question for you, because I I ask this of everybody I interview, but with you, I was really particularly excited to ask this. Um, music is such a big part of your life uh, and I always ask folks what music they're listening to when they're involved with a project whether it's to calm down afterwards or uh, during the shooting or to get yourself psyched up while you're doing writing or editing or research uh, what, what's been the soundtrack for you as you've been working on this project? Sam Cooke uh, this is a lot of Sam Cooke a lot of his music from his era
0: It was a lot of the music from era. I listened to Sam Cooke. I listened to the um some of the Delphonics. But really it was Sam Cooke because their their relationship. And there's a song in particular Mm -hmm. that for whatever reason sticks in my head with the Zale documentary. Remember that song, Kansas City? Kansas City, here come. I'm going
1: to Kansas City. Absolutely. Kansas City. There's something Kansas about Kansas City, like, Here I Come.
0: Yeah, Kansas City, Here I Come. It's a, that yeah. song stuck with me because a, if you listen to the song, there's a great rhythm to that. And if you watch Ali fighting, you can almost put that song on there and see how he's dancing and moving. Some re- for some reason in my head, I always thought he trained for that song. I had it in the film. Um, I think it's still in there. Yeah, I think it's still in there. But course, for some reason, that was sort of in my head that's the Ali rhythm.
1: And of course, Ali famously covered Sam Cooke in his own album. Uh, and uh, Ali sat with Sam Cooke after he beat Liston with uh, Jim Brown and Malcolm X in that ho- famous hotel meeting in Miami. That's right. Yeah, he, he did so a lot of great connections there.
0: That's right. Yeah, wow, that's right. it's amazing. Well, I mean, let me.
1: It's amazing. Life. go ahead, sir. Yeah. And, and let me just say with, with, with all humility, I, I absolutely love the documentary and I wanted to thank you for making it. it it's, it's a hell of an addition to the canon of Ali-isms that's out there. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you so much. I appreciate your time.
1: Thank you. The film is What's My Name? The director is Antoine Foucault. Please check it out. It's really worth seeing. It's HBO. It's May 14th. Can't recommend it highly enough. We'll be back right after this with a word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. Kansas City, Kansas City, here I come. Okay, look, the need for independent journalism has never been more important, and the nation brings it each and every week like they've been doing since 1865. I'm serious. This is what you got to read. It's The Nation magazine. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe. And please never forget that when you support The Nation magazine, you are also supporting the continued existence of this podcast. So please subscribe. Go to www.thenation.com slash subscribe. And now back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now I've got some choice words about Donald Trump's nominee for the Federal Reserve Board. Believe me, it's more outrageous than it sounds. His name is Stephen Moore, and he's more than just a particularly slavish Trump world sycophant. He's a flaming bag of sexist trash. This is not my opinion. It's a simple summary of Moore's writing in conservative media over the last two decades. The embarrassingly unqualified economist has written quote-unquote hot takes about women having too much power and visibility and the effect it has on young men. In 2000, he wrote about college life and concerns about sexual assault on campuses with the following pithy observation. Quote, the women seemed to survive just fine. If they were so oppressed and offended by drunken, lustful frat boys, why is it that on Friday nights they showed up in droves in tight skirts to the keg parties? But it's his writing about sports that has provided Moore with his most irresistible platform to go full bigot. Among his more noxious comments, Moore wrote this in 2002. Here's the rule change I propose. No more women refs, no women announcers, no women beer vendors, no women anything. There is, of course, an exception to this rule. Women are permitted to participate if and only if they look like sports reporter Bonnie Bernstein. The fact that Bonnie knows nothing about basketball is entirely irrelevant. He advised in a later column that Bernstein, who's one of the most respected announcers in sports journalism, should only be allowed to do her job if wearing a halter top. He also raged against the idea of women reffing a men's basketball game, writing, How outrageous is this? Liberals celebrate this breakthrough as a triumph for gender equity. The NCAA has been touting this as an example of how progressive they are. I see it as an obscenity. Is there no area in life where men can take a vacation from women? What's next? Women invited to bachelor parties? Women in combat? Oh yeah, they've done that already. Why can't women ref the women's games and men the men's games? I can't wait to see the first lady ref have a run-in with Bobby Knight. Yes, Bob Knight he of the rampant bullying and rape jokes, is Moore's exemplar of the kind of masculinity that would put women in their place. Moore also fancies himself as an expert on, quote, the feminization of basketball, writing, And while I'm venting on the subject, here's another travesty. In playground games and rec leagues these days, women now feel free to play with the men, uninvited in almost every case. There's no joy in dunking over a girl. If I could, I wouldn't celebrate dunking over someone named Tina. Moore also railed against women's tennis with some of the mustiest arguments imaginable. He writes, The women tennis pros don't really want equal pay for equal work. They want equal pay for inferior work. Blah, 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 blah. Now, Moore's response to the surfacing of this work was to say against all evidence to the contrary, I have a sense of humor. This is probably a smart play, since the only response that would probably offend Trump would be if Moore apologized. But this is not just about sports. Moore doesn't care a whit about sports. This is about intimidating and silencing women in American life, with the kind of sophomoric bullying threats that would get an eight-year-old punished. He's Brett Kavanaugh with bifocals. A sane society would consign this mediocrity to the lamest corners of the internet so he can rage to his heart's content. Instead, he's rising to power on the backs of the very women that he so gleefully stepped upon to the delight of his orange master in the Oval Office. We'll be back right after this with a quick word from Edge of Sports. Hey everybody out there, this is Dave Zirin with the Edge of Sports Podcast. We appreciate you. Make no mistake about it. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now it's time for the Just Stand Up Award. Just stand up and just sit your ass down. The Just Stand Up Award is connected to a previous show we did on the Edge of Sports podcast. It goes to the communities of Prince George's and Montgomery County. People organized, people demonstrated, people did charity soccer games, online petitions, and the result is that Coach Fofo, Coach Fofo, who we discussed on this show, who was threatened with deportation, an absolute saint in the children's soccer scene here in the Maryland suburbs, will not be getting deported. He got a six month stay. Now, the fight still continues, of course, but the fact that he's gone from being somebody who was basically having to pack his bags and say goodbye to his family and his children after being in this country for over 20 years to somebody who now has six months to plead his case is a tremendous victory for grassroots pressure. ICE has blinked. If they blinked around Coach Fofo, they can blink again. We don't have to be just victims to the Trump agenda. We can fight back against it. And the use of sports in terms of building a community of resistance around Coach Fofo is something that we should not forget and something that we should not ignore. The Just Sit Your Ass Down Award. Sit your ass down. Goes to none other than Nick Bosa, the number two pick in the NFL draft. And also goes to NFL owners who didn't care that Nick Bosa is somebody who has a penchant on social media for liking posts on white nationalist websites. I mean, this is really outrageous. Nick Bosa has been drafted to the team of Colin Kaepernick. What a journey in two and a half years. From being a team that rallied around a player who took a knee during the anthem to protest racist police brutality, to the team that selects Nick Bosa. And what it shows is the utter hypocrisy of NFL ownership. They say that sports and politics don't mix, but what they really mean is that sports and a certain kind of politics don't mix. Colin Kaepernick's politics, the politics of the ungrateful athlete, the unruly black player, those are the politics that get marginalized and get you blackballed from the league. The politics of Nick Bosa are frankly the politics of a lot of people who cover the NFL and a lot of the people, if not all the people, who own NFL teams. Therefore, Nick Bosa's brand of politics is accepted. Let's see if it gets accepted in the locker room, especially a locker room that contains outspoken cornerback Richard Sherman. To be continued. And Donald Trump could not resist sending out an obnoxious tweet saying, Congratulations to Nick Bosa, always stay true to yourself, make America great again. Hey Trump, you're not doing this kid any favors. Well, that's all the time we have for this week's show. Thank you so much to Antoine Fouqua. Thank you so much to everybody out there listening. Please support the show on Patreon at patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. We're adding new extras all the time. We got a great interview up there about the politics of WrestleMania with Damian Smith. We also have a great interview with Davey D, legendary hip-hop and politics journalist about the legacy of Nipsey Hussle. For everybody out there listening, please stay frosty. We are out of here. Peace.